Welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And I'm Brian Fabian Crane. On July 10th and 11th, we were in London for the Coin Summit Conference. This two-day event gathered approximately 250 investors, entrepreneurs, and developers to discuss some of the most important issues facing the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency ecosystem. This episode features two interviews. The first is with Jonathan Levin, co-founder of Coinimetrics, and he discusses transaction fees, Bitcoin economics, and the upcoming relaunch of Coinimetrics. In the second interview, we talked with Peter Todd, who's a Bitcoin core developer and a consultant to a number of different projects such as Mastercoin and Dark Wallet. We discussed with him mining centralization, the state of Bitcoin development, and the economics of transaction fees. Yeah, so we're here with Jonathan Levin. He's the, until recently he was at Oxford uh, doing a dissertation, master's thesis on Bitcoin, which I'm extremely eager to read. And uh, he's also co-founder of Coinometrics. Uh, he was just uh, presenting at the startup showcase. Uh, perhaps uh, to start off, uh, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about, perhaps, let's start with your dissertation. Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm... Yeah, we know each other. We've been on the podcast before, but Jonathan Levin, for the, for the people that haven't listened, uh, Jonathan Levin, uh, I was doing an economics master's at Oxford, and I wrote about the economic incentives that are introduced uh, in a system that spends time away from consensus. So we know that Bitcoin has been designed as this really elegant computer science solution to the Byzantine generals problem. But that does mean that although we come to consensus about what transactions have happened, we do spend time as a network away from that state. And what that means is that... Which, are you, so are you talking about the time after a block, the time between a block is mined and the next block? Is that so so the, time, the time between a block is found on the network and the time at which everyone now finds out about that new block. Yeah. So when, when a miner finds a block, they individually find it, and they tell, say, eight peers about the block. And then those eight peers verify that the miner has done the... Yeah. Uh, it, it's got the right proof of work, and all the transactions in it are valid, and then they propagate it around the network. So slowly, the network builds consensus in knowing what the latest block in the chain is. But you can see that initially, only one person knows the new state of the Bitcoin network, and everyone else is left in the dark. So as the block spreads around, so consensus is built. Um, and essentially, that, that means some interesting things on the mining side. So uh, my thesis was about, well, what does that information delay mean for someone who is trying to mine a block? And if blocks that are larger propagate slower, is that costly for the miner. And what I found was that basically the marginal cost of including a Bitcoin transaction in a block was proportional to the information delay that the network and, uh, has what did you uh, what did you find was the marginal cost of including so, a transaction? Yeah, so, so you need to make a couple of assumptions to make some progress here. Um, but essentially, I found that Bitcoin currently at the low fee is... Um, is not incentive compatible for a, for a, for a small miner. So if you if you were solo mining on the network, you should not be including any transactions, uh, which I thought was really problematic. Um, 
And the fee would have to go up by about four times in order for you to break that incentive compatibility problem. Um, four times is not that much. I mean, it's then 20 cent on a transaction. I was, I was interesting because I was asking Gavin, uh, I was talking with Gavin at uh, the Amsterdam conference. Yeah. And I asked him something very similar. And he said, according to his calculation, maybe he uses some other method. He said that he brings us 10 cents, the marginal cost of including trans- one transaction. <laughs> Yeah, so Gavin uses um, <laughs> Gavin uses the average uh, propagation delay figure from a Christian Decker paper back in 2013 okay, as his as his way of calculating. So poor data. Poor data. We're, I, I'm in constant. I'm constantly trying to give Gavin updated data, but uh, so far he we haven't we haven't managed to do that. Uh, I'm really looking forward to smart fees and and actually providing some good data for them to make decisions about how that market looks like. Because um, I think that's, I think fundamentally we need to do some modeling before that gets implemented. Mm. Yeah. I think the miners also need to understand this. So one of the things is that it's an underappreciated issue, under-researched, and no one knows what the marginal cost of a transaction is, and uh, miners should be aware of it, Spe- specifically small pools, actually. So uh, what would the consequence of this be? I mean, uh, do you expect that maybe if you're going to post your dissertation or it's going to get some attention maybe now that people hear about it do you expect that uh, miners will uh, stop more miners will stop including transactions in their blocks no so so right now I mean when we say it's not incentive compatible I think I mean you're, talk, you're still talking about small amounts you're still talking yeah. about $10 worth of um, returns on a block which is worth tons more so yeah. you're talking about a pretty marginal decision for the miners but I think uh, generally you, um, this is an important issue to bear in mind for sort of long-term, yeah. long-term development um, priorities. So when they're thinking about smart fees, that's a long-term development um, goal and we need to actually model this first so that they have the best tools to, to really um, to structure this market correctly. So um, what do you think fees should look like in the future? So I think fees eventually must actually provide the incentives for security. Um, I think it's very interesting that uh, right now the model of Bitcoin security is that the the inflation reward, the, the the block reward essentially provides the only security for the network. And initially that's like the best idea ever because you don't want the security of the network to be proportional to the amount of activity if there's no activity. But once there is activity, then you actually do want your security to be proportional to that. Um, And so transaction fees are a really big part of that. I think you'll see Ethereum and some of the altcoins take that more seriously in the next 12 months um, and try and see how you can create a, a decentralized cryptocurrency where fees provide a large incentive yeah. for miners to contribute. I mean, it might it might take a different proof of work. Um, might might have to be more proof of stake driven. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that's the crux of cryptocurrencies right now. Yeah, no, I think it's a super important issue. And so you think that some of these other currencies, uh, like Ethereum, or uh, is Bitcoin too volume stuff can solve some of these problems? Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, like, I've been reading a bunch of stuff that Vitalik has been up to recently. Um, I'm quite encouraged that he's thinking very hard about how transaction fees should incentivize security. Um, but I think that 
Are you talking about his blog posts? Or? His blog posts and also he posts in, there's a, an Ethereum economics Skype group that okay. he he often posts in. He's also got some stuff on his GitHub if you go and check out yeah. Vitalik's book, GitHub. He's got some interesting Python code to economic, to model the economics of uh, a decentralized crypto. So he, he's... I mean, he's a mathematician. He's he's pushing he's pushing the boundaries for sure. Um, and yeah, whether they have a solution for this, I don't know. Right. Cool. Well, it's great uh, to you know, it's great to see that you talk, uh, think about this, and I think it's something that we also talked about with Mike Hearn recently. We had him on a podcast, you know, and, and he um, he thinks. It feels the same way in many ways. He doesn't think that the transaction fees, although he's perhaps even more skeptical, he said he doesn't think transaction fees will be able to provide network security in the future. And he, he felt that there should be more some sort of um, actually contractual, something assurance. He talks yeah, about assurance contracts. About like maybe, I mean, I, I had any idea. Well, you could integrate it in the wallet software that, you know, there's some sort of insurance contracts or basically a sort of a donation model right I mean which of course seems problematic too so yeah I think one of the one of the other interesting discussions is if there are for example services that depend on the the security of the Bitcoin network to function something like a colored coin master coin etc and there are services that have essentially high value high-value propositions built on top of Bitcoin, then actually you might, you might be able to sustain a kind of fee model based on those applications rather than simply just the Bitcoin, um, the Bitcoin fee structure. Um, and that might provide security. Although I think there's, that, there's a lot of thinking. That, that's a very early stage idea. I think Peter Todd has said that the security of Bitcoin in some ways increases if you have multiple applications built on top because 51% attack on all of those is what's needed to 51% attack on one of them. Really? It seems like it should be the opposite there and because you have, uh, I mean, let's say the block reward now gives an incentive right, yeah. for security, but then if you have things that run on top of it, you know, where you don't get a block reward, you can have the, maybe your incentives to attack those. Your incentive uh, to attack those will be higher for sure um, and potentially to attack the Bitcoin network to gain, to gain 51% of the power. But, but essentially, you have, um, essentially you have multiple targets that you should be, um, that you need to double spend on. Um, in order to make the attack worth it. So each one of those is going to provide a level of security. And in order to attack one of them, you're going to have, the, you're going to, have to have the capability to sort of overcome the security that's, that's provided by all the services. So, so let's just be simple. So you've got Bitcoin. Bitcoin provides security through this block header. Colored coins have a fee structure that feed into Bitcoin security because miners only mine colored coin transactions if the fee is high enough. Yeah. If the fee on colored coin transactions is, is significant, then Bitcoin hash rate will go up in proportion to the colored coin fees. And therefore, Bitcoin becomes actually more secure based on the fees of the color coin. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, there's obviously attack vectors. So it's the incentive to attack colored coins, I think, is a very big issue. So double spending on a colored coin transaction might be 
really easy if they're based on the Bitcoin blockchain, but double spending a Bitcoin transaction becomes less likely if a colored coin is implemented on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. Yeah. That's, that's one way that I think about it. So you founded Coinmetrix, and um, I think you just released, you guys just released a new site recently. We're, we're releasing a new site in the next sort of week or yeah. two. So okay. maybe by the time the podcast has come out, you would have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it will be up and running. And so can you just tell us about uh, well, the new site? What's the, what, what are the new things that you'll be offering there? And sure. Perhaps where that's going. Yeah. So. Um, we decided to launch a new site. We wanted to make um, the information even more accessible to someone who's uh, not from a Bitcoin community. Um, we launching a industry-grade uh, price index that has qu- four quantitative rules attached to it rather than qualitative rules that we see in all the other indexes today. Can you uh, just explain what that means? Yeah, so um, <laughs> essentially what you want from an index is you want to try and capture the fair market value of a Bitcoin today. Um, and now that's a very subjective question and people have uh, implemented price ind- indices during the Mt. Gox kind of saga and all of those price indices were designed in such a way so that you could basically create an index that excluded Mt. Gox. They, they set some rules saying you've got to be able to process transactions like this or you've got to be able to do stuff like that. Um, and essentially that, that doesn't give you great transparency moving forward because you don't know how often that criteria is applied. You're not sure if that criteria is going to change next week based on some other exchange that comes along that behaves quite strangely. And the only way to really do this is actually to to, to look at the numbers and say, does this exchange, com- uh, does it behave in the same way that the market is currently behaving? Um, and that's a statistical question rather than a qualitative question. Um, and so what we did was we, we sat down and we thought, well, okay, we need, we need a certain amount of volume on the index uh, in order to in order to have sort of price discovery. Um, We also don't want its price to be consistently different from the median in the market. We also don't want its um, change in price to move very differently to the rest of the market in any given time period. So we we apply that on a a weekly basis at the moment. We update that every day as it currently stands. We take a volume-weighted last price. So the last price change traded on an exchange is weighted by the 24-hour volume on that exchange uh, in our in our current calculation. And we also have a final rule that kind of is a black swan uh, rule where we say that if anything goes absolutely mad on any of the exchanges, they automatically get dropped off. So, so uh, if you apply those uh, criteria and go back, would Mount Cox have been excluded? And from what point on? Yeah, so, so actually you'll see... According to our criteria, exchanges go in and out um, uh, a little bit. Uh, there was like a period where Mount Gox was diverging in like sort of October time and they, they then get cut off our index. Um, but it happens in, it, and then in February, I mean, they get dropped off as well. But if you, if you were tracking Mount Gox throughout, a lot, of the, a lot of the indexes were tracking Mount Gox throughout the whole thing. Um, yeah. And I think that that's problematic because there were obviously signs that stuff was going wrong um, and, it, and it was somewhat of an isolated market. So our price index looks quite smooth throughout that time and any traders who were sort of using our index would be able to apply the same criteria that we apply. Uh, we apply it consistently so they would know when Mt. Gox was going to be excluded. 
So that's that, I think the transparency and we've, as you say, we've we've back tested the index. We've had a look at yeah. what would have happened had we applied the index going backwards, and that, we use that to calibrate the index. So. Um, yeah, we've prepared some documentation and we're open for people to approach us to license it out. So are you going to uh, charge fees, uh, I guess, for API calls uh, above a certain rate? Yeah, that, that, that's the idea. Um, and depending on the use case as well. So some, some I've had some conversations at Coin Summit about, uh, about implementing uh, a price indices, a price index for a derivatives product. Uh, they need to do it slightly differently. They might need to tweak it and we'll we'll do some licensing agreement and, <laughs> and charge for that service. Yeah. Like going back to uh, CoinMetrics, so what are the other, some of the other features that are coming out uh, on the new website? So we had a volatility index on our previous site. That's going to be expanded to cover all the exchanges, to cover the price index. We're going to have multiple models if you want to, um, if you want to compare them. We're going to have some products probably not on the website but if you are a derivatives platform and you need to do some volatility modeling to know whether you can you can offer 10x leverage then we can help you out and figure out whether that's a good idea or whether that's going to blow your bank so those are those are a couple of the features we're doing some more blockchain analysis at the moment uh lots of stuff about um estimating volumes of casino activity trying to get into understanding how much commercial activity is actually happening on the blockchain and really trying to um, uh, trying to provide some more high-level metrics um, about velocity of money, circulation, wealth concentration, and all of that stuff will be coming out quite soon. Is anybody else doing any of this? Or? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're the only people doing this. I think the... Um, I think that there's there's an index started by Pantera Capital, which was trying to track uh, Bitcoin adoption, which was quite good. Um, but I think that some of that is more high-level stuff, sort of GitHub repository stuff. Um, I think really there's... Uh, actually, there was a presentation here by a guy um, called Chen, who's uh, at Blockview. They're, they're starting to do some blockchain visualizations, which are which are quite nice, um, and trying to get inside the commercial activity angle. Um, there's a few of us doing it. Um, I like to think that we're being very rigorous and <laughs> ahead of the competition, yeah. but maybe we're not. Um, so I remember the last time, or one of the last times we talked, you were still finishing your dissertation or your thesis, and uh, you also were thinking about doing a PhD. Yeah. Uh, are you sort of committed to uh, you know yeah. building a company working on metrics or is this still the idea of perhaps uh, writing a PhD thesis on some Bitcoin topic? Uh, yeah, I think um, I mean at the moment I'm working absolutely full time on Chronometrics, trying to make it a company. Um, if if in October in a few months time nothing has happened with Coinometrics, which I'd be very surprised about if that was the case. But um, if that were to be the case, yeah, I might consider going back into sure. academia. Um, I guess it's more... Uh, I enjoy far more working with our Coinometrics team than academics, put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can understand that. <laughs> well, great. Thanks uh, very much for taking time to talk to us. Thanks for Once again. Th thanks for having me on the show, and um, yeah, so we'll try to have you on uh, on a more regular basis to kind of give us the state of Bitcoin and 
the economic bulletin. Yeah, we could call it the economic bulletin. Jonathan Levin. Pleasure, guys. Great to have you here. So we're here with uh, Peter Todd, who's a Bitcoin core developer, and um, who just wrapped up a talk about uh, Bitcoin mining and the risk of a 51% attack. Um, can you just kind of give us a brief summary of uh, what was said and you know, your thoughts on uh, the state of mining right now? Yeah, well, I think what's interesting about the ghash.io situation is, on one level, I think it really does show that the underlying incentive structure behind Bitcoin is flawed. You know, we should not have a system which has incentives for people. It gets 51%. And indeed, the system should have disincentives for people to get 51%. You know, even if ghash.io was completely honest and, you know, they were not going to attack Bitcoin, the reality is they can get hacked. You know, they can get coerced. They can turn evil later. Not to mention, you know, it's just, it's not good PR to go and say, well, in reality, actually, yeah, one person controls most of the network. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly something we need to fix long term. In the short term, though, you know, I think there's rough consensus among people in the mining community, people in the pool community, that we just have to really agree to limit how big pools are, which is on a voluntary basis. But in the short term, that's the kind of um, thing that has worked before and I think will work again. And in the long term, while well, we're researching technical solutions. And so what are some of those potential technical solutions? I mean, are, are there propositions out there to limit mining uh, so that um, the network will, like you say, disincentivize people from, uh, or disincentivize pools uh, from reaching this critical mass? So there's a couple different mechanisms here. Um, Maybe the first one to go speak of is the actual process of solving the math problem that Bitcoin blocks need solved to exist, which is the hashing. And essentially, of course, hashing, you plug in some hashing power, you turn electricity into math problems and heat. And the nice thing about this is on a physical level, that's guaranteed to be decentralized at some level. Because useful things you can go do with the heat to run this hashing power at the lowest possible cost that is not an opportunity that exists in one place. You know, if I'm heating my greenhouse, well, there's a lot of greenhouses around the world, and there's going to be thousands of people making use of waste heat from mining. There's going to be thousands of people making use of pockets of cheap electricity, like wind power generation in the middle of nowhere. That's unaffordable to run a power line back to civilization. Well, what can you do? You can go put some mining power at the base of your wind turbine, you know, with a sat link. And these are all good opportunities. The problem is, currently all those people will still have an incentive to sell that hashing power to a big centralized mining pool, where you get your attacks or you know, your incentives to control the network. And one of the things we can do is essentially make it impossible to run a pool. Uh, Andrew Miller has a very interesting idea along these lines, which is some math techniques where if I solve a block for you, near the pool, I can then steal the reward later, and you have no way of even proving who did it, or that it was done. So, uh, I, I want to go back to these incentives in a second, because I, I think I have some doubts about that. But uh, when we talk about this idea, would there be any way 
of achieving a change like that because wouldn't the mining pools in the end have to support that and it's really against their own interests? Well, after all, the mining pools in the network can change. Uh, you know, one example that you could do to implement this is you would create the mining pool, lend all mining pools, and the rules are if you want to mine at this, you've got to go prove that you support this new protocol. And the moment the majority of miners agree that this is a good idea, okay, that mining pool ceases to exist. And I guess you could do some kind of uh, crowdfunding that you maybe you would even pay people to join that mining pool more. Absolutely, right? you can, yeah. You can essentially subsidize this to end mining pools. That's a great idea, actually. No, yeah. Maybe that is feasible. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting is, you know, this is really a political thing. You know, this is implementing a piece of technology. We're not still sure yet what exact piece of technology is the right way to do this. And when time comes to implement this, it'll really be a matter of doing the politics to get consensus that this is the right solution forward for Bitcoin. I'm sure there will be stakeholders who not, do not want this to happen. But, you know, it's just a matter of convincing people this is the right way forward for Bitcoin. Um, so uh, I wanted to come back to the thing you said about, you know, like having heat in distributed places with kind of... And, and I agree that factor is there, right? But if you have uh, if you have economies of scale on the production of the hardware itself, right, and that works against that again. Uh, yes. And I'm, I've always... And I guess especially when you have the hardware depreciating value so quickly, it seems that... Those, at least at this stage, are much stronger. Maybe that will change in the future, but... Well, you know, in the future, we can fully expect the depreciation of hardware to slow. Because yeah. we're, we went through this period in the ASIC mining business where we kept creating ASIC miners that had uh, smaller and smaller geometries, more and more advanced types of ASICs. You know, we went from, say, 250, was it, nanometers to 160, now 22, which is top of the line. And you're not going to, now we're at the point where the ASICs are manufactured with the same technology as the best chips in the world. And equally, Moore's Law, this whole computer's become twice as fast every 18 months, that's actually ended. You know, that's technological progression has ended, and we do not know what will be next. It may never advance at the same rate it does. At the same time, you know, it is true that ASIC production is extremely centralized. There's probably a half dozen companies in the world that can make competitive ASIC right now. Now, that's, what, what kind of risk does that pose, do you think? I think it's very simple. Governments can go say, you know what, we're going to start regulating mining equipment. And even though your ASIC who we think is mining equipment manufacturers, they're really designers who design equipment and then subcontract the actual creation of it to other companies. And that subcontracting, so long as it's possible to go pay someone to go make an ASIC for you, we're fine. And if that gets regulated, we're not fine. I think um, I know some people uh, in Comedy in Berlin that's very involved, has been like researching that a lot. And at least what they said is that the, the kind of companies that can actually do some of the subcontracting work, that is extremely limited as well. Yep. So, um, you know, even, that's just something that, you know, you're not going to be able to change, right? Because that's how chip manufacturing works today. Yeah, we know of no other way to do it. Um, on the other hand, I mean, keep in mind, this is a problem we face with all computing. Uh, you know, Richard Stallman has said for many, many years that... DRM technologies, digital restrictions management, Mm -hmm. 
they are very dangerous because we could end up in a world where you cannot buy a general purpose computer. And the reason why you still can, it really comes down to politics. You know, we've pushed back so hard on people trying to introduce mandatory DRM that we still have a free computing environment. I think ASICs um, for Bitcoin mining is a bit more precarious situation because it's special purpose hardware. But, you know, ultimately control of chip manufacturing is a very politically touchy subject. You know, so we do have that angle. And it always comes down to the more people are involved with Bitcoin, the more beneficial uses it has for society, the harder it is for anyone to go say, you know what, we should go stop this. Uh, so do you, what do you think is going to happen there? Because, I mean, I see the, the solution of the mining pool, I think, and that's actually really interesting. I think that's something that, you know, I think that's something that can work. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, but what about the mining, manufacturing? Do you think we will find some solution there? Or do you think that's just too late because of the proof of work we have here? I honestly have no idea. I mean, I can kind of think in terms of what are possibilities, but... You know, if you wanted me to put a bet on it, I wouldn't really know. And yeah. I think it's too hard to know. Equally, you know, maybe we will have some technology um, advancements. You know, hypothetically, imagine if genetic engineering got way better and we could grow A6 in a vat. You know, that'd be great. Mm. <laughs> I don't have any clue how that could happen. I don't think yeah. I, any biologists have any clue how that could happen. But I don't know, maybe we'll see something that crazy. You know, the sky's the limit. You uh, you mentioned politics quite quite a few times. Um, there's been some recent uh, discussion about internal politics uh, within the Bitcoin core development community. Um, we interviewed Mike Kern a, a few weeks ago, and, and he seems to think his, his impression is that there is a fundamental problem right now within Bitcoin core development where um, uh, developers are not getting along and development is not advancing and essentially only one person is uh, actually doing anything um, to uh, make the Bitcoin protocol um, advance. So w what are your thoughts on this? Uh, do you share this, this view or do you think that uh, this is an exaggeration? I think that view is a very misguided view of how Bitcoin progresses and how Bitcoin really works. You know, if anything, I would say that the Bitcoin ecosystem is actually advancing and progressing and developing at a faster rate than it ever has before. And, you know, I say this on the basis of all the things people are doing with the Bitcoin protocol. You're seeing things like multisig finally get implemented through multiple different companies for different purposes. You're seeing things like escrow get implemented. You're seeing things like entire embedded consensus systems getting implemented that leverage Bitcoin to do all sorts of stuff that were never envisioned before. You know, there's just so many ways that people are taking the Bitcoin protocol and advancing the development of it. Now, that's not to say that the Bitcoin core protocol itself is changing very rapidly, but that's okay. You know, the analogy I would make is a web. TCP IP doesn't change very much. It's a very slow process to implement upgrades, and that's fine. It's the core base layer that everything else is built on. But by the time you get up to web browsers, JavaScript, and so on, innovation happens very rapidly. And you should expect that kind of stack where there's base layers that are stable, less stable, less stable, till finally get the really experimental stuff. And that's what should happen. I think where Mike comes from is that, you know, he's 
proposed a lot of ideas that really change Bitcoin core protocol. And there's been a lot of disagreements on whether the ideas are any good. And a lot of them have been shot down. And, you know, what do you expect if you propose major changes? It's going to be very hard to get consensus on it. And that's fine. You shouldn't expect Bitcoin core protocol to change much. Equally, development of refining the implementation, I would say that's, again, it's happening at a relatively rapid pace. It has to be very careful because we can make very expensive mistakes with this. It's an $8 billion industry. And predictably, people have been careful and they've been pushing unit tests along. They've been pushing refinements to the protocol um, implementation along. Um, Peter Wool, I think I got that pronunciation right. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he's done a tremendous amount of very interesting work. Um, we had TX Mutability. That was, uh, you know, there's many aspects of it and a lot of them have been solved and we're working towards solving that. Um, we have... Uh, Things like fee estimation, which, you know, we're kind of working out bugs of that. You know, to go say, like, there's just one person working on things, I think is very misguided. So when he says that uh, Bitcoin core development has, has pretty much grounded, uh, st you know, stopped, um, you think that this is actually the norm, that things should move along slowly and, yeah. and that... Uh, yeah. And, and after all, I mean, when he says that it stopped, it's running at the same speed that it always has been, okay. which is slow and careful and deliberate. You know, it hasn't changed, actually. If, you know, if anything, we're seeing it maybe increase a little. And some of that increase of speed has led to some bugs, which predictably leads to a pushback. And, all right, let's be a little more conservative next time. You know, the hard fork that we had um, last year, that was a mistake in part caused by the increased speed of development. You know, equally, I personally caught a bug where the next... Um, implementation of you know, the next release of Bitcoin Core could have been spending $500 or more per transaction in excess fees. Unfortunately, that bug was caught and it's never made into release, but you know, that's an example of the sort of thing you yeah. run into if you're not careful and you're not cautious. Yeah, so uh, one topic uh, I've been thinking about quite a lot in the last you know, few months is uh, transaction fees. And I'm like, a lot of uh, questions, doubts about how these work. So I'm curious, can you briefly talk about, you know, because now they're, they're working on floating fees, or, you know, Gavin's yeah. working on floating fees. Can you talk about uh, that and, like, maybe how those will work and review your views on that? Well, first of all, it's important to remember that we've always had floating fees. And I think the viewpoint that says that floating fees are something new is one that takes the view that Bitcoin is a network with unlimited capacity. You know, there's some people who take the view that transactions should always be nearly free. There should obviously be tons of computing power to go around to process transactions, and block sizes should be unlimited, and we'll just manage it somehow. Whereas I would go argue, and I think many people are in the same position here, Bitcoin as a system fundamentally, at the lowest level, does not scale well. Because everyone who needs to validate the blockchain has to have a copy of it on an ongoing basis. And, you know, in computer science terms, we'd call that a system with N-squared scale, scalability, which is usually thought of as very, very poor. Fortunately, you know, we don't have to use Bitcoin directly. We can go build systems on top of it. Uh, we can go build trust-free systems, like micropayment channels where, you know, you 
and I can send money to each other, rapidly changing how much we send, and then all collapsing that into one transaction. And, you know, what it comes down to is fees are just a way of bidding for space in the blockchain. And you've always been able to bid what you want. You know, with this fee estimation stuff, we're just seeing a mechanism to go estimate that. And, yeah. So, uh, I mean, right now, right, the, the standard way of, um, of um, if you have a double spending attempt, right, where you have uh, two transactions spending the same inputs, uh, right now the miners take the, the first one in general. Yeah, that's right? a separate issue, yeah. Um, and I know you actually wrote a patch for replaced by fee, yeah. uh, which in my view seems to be extremely problematic you know, because it would destroy uh, zero unconfirmed transactions you know, like the ability to accept unconfirmed transactions. I actually argue the opposite. Um, what it does is it aligns the uh, incentives correctly. And what's interesting about this, so I'll explain. So replaced by fee says rather than you accepting the first transaction you see, you just accept whichever one pays the highest fee. So basically if I send money to you, I can then modify the transaction later which may include not sending the money to you anymore. But what's interesting is that if then I modify that transaction, broadcast a new one that sends the money somewhere else, you can go respond to me and say, you know what, screw you. I'm going to go take the money you rightfully sent me and sent it all the fees. And now chances are that transaction will be the one that gets mined. And I'm still going to end up paying someone. Wait, chances are the, the second one gets mine. The third one. So I create transaction number one, yeah. paying some merchant. I create transaction number two. Paying myself. Paying myself. With more fee. And then the merchant creates transaction number three. That spends the output of transaction number one, all the mining fees. So the, per, the person trying to go rip off the merchant still ends up paying. And the merchant may not get the money, but businesses do not operate on... Uh, the need for every single transaction to happen without fraud. They operate on the need to keep fraud low. And by turning something where I can go get away with fraud into simple vandalism, where I don't earn anything from it, really removes incentives. Uh, but that also presumes that somehow merchants are uh, prepared for this. And uh... Well, they're already prepared. Very few merchants accept zero-comp transactions because the current system well, has been... Well, they pay DOS, right? No, they don't. I guess they leave it up to the merchant, yeah. They don't, actually. BitPay, the way they handle ZeroConf is a merchant who's in a position where it doesn't actually matter if a transaction gets double-spent, provided they find out before they, say, ship the goods. They'll, of course, tell you your order's accepted instantly, but it doesn't mean that they've sent you a package in the mail instantly. Yeah. And... As an example, ATM machines where you deposit some Bitcoins and you get cash out. Um, I've personally been in discussion with uh, some vendors of this stuff as well as some operators. And nearly everyone's turned off ZeroConf transactions in a way that exposes them to fraud because the current system's insecure and it's very easy to double spend. You just have to use some technical tricks. So do you think uh, unconfirmed transactions are just like unsecure? A point, there's no way to make them Well, secure. I think with replaced by fee, this so-called scorched earth strategy, it goes a long way to making them secure. Um, with micropayment channels, you can make them 
secure. The point is that the existing system has been proven not to work for. But then, if replaced by fee, it would increase the trans- it would end up increasing transaction fees. No. 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 Replaced by fee is independent of transaction fees. Wait. So uh, I want to get back to that because I didn't quite understand it. So I, I send a transaction to the merchant, and then I send a transaction myself, paying a higher fee, right? I, this, this far yeah. I understand it, but then yeah. what does you the merchant do? You have just tried to rip me. If I I'm tried the merchant, to rip you, you just tried yeah. to rip me off. Now the merchant can respond by taking your first transaction, sending it all the fees. Yeah. Which means that the merchant still doesn't receive the money, but so the wait. person trying to commit fraud doesn't gain so any what benefit. So what does the merchant do with the first transaction? They spend it all the fees. They spend all the fees. They spend it all to fees because they have the yeah. money. Okay. Now they spend it all to fees. A miner will include both transactions. They yeah. earn the benefit of all those fees, and the person trying to commit fraud has no gain. But uh, this, if you have, you know, I recently there was this pool which I thought was very interesting, this bit undo thing. Uh, where they would have a mining pool uh, just of miners supporting this kind, you know, basically uh, replaced by bid undo's had nearly no traction. I, I know they yeah. have no traction. And what's interesting about bid undo is if you're a mining pool operating the service, you have an incentive to tell the merchants about the double spend so you can go get more fees. Uh, true. <laughs> and but it would be possible there to do it privately, so when the merchant realizes it's too late. Sure, but after all, if you make the assumption that mining power is well distributed, there's never going to be one pool that has significant hashing power to go pull this kind of attack off often. Yeah. Other than the replace by fee method where you have the scorched earth defense. And, you know, that's not even getting into all these other mechanisms like green address is micropayment channels and, yeah. you know, off-chain transactions which protect this. Never mind the fact that few merchants are actually vulnerable anyway. I mean, what's important with replace by fees, it ensures that the incentives are aligned so we're not depending on honesty. We're depending on economic self-interest. And that's a much better position for Bitcoin to be in than trust. Not to mention, I mean, replace by fees is useful too for many protocols. You know, regardless of who's trying to rip who off, in many cases it's just useful to be able to change a transaction after the fact. You know, if I pay three people in a row, it's more efficient and I'll spend less money if I modify the first transaction to then pay the second person and the third person. And that yeah. makes Bitcoin as a whole more efficient. Okay. No, that's uh, interesting. Uh, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that. I, I guess another thing that may very briefly, although I think it's maybe not as important of an issue, uh, one thing I've also been thinking about that seems like doesn't make any sense to me is right now, right, if, we have a, if I send a transaction that doesn't pay a fee, like eventually it will get included in the block because it like becomes uh, rises in priority over time. Oh, that's just a simple thing of miners giving away transaction space for free. They're exactly, paying, right? it yeah. makes no sense really from a miner's perspective. Yeah, it's you know it's one of those things where it has a low cost to them. It's a very small amount of space per block yeah. that's um, reserved for this. So for them to give away, you know, maybe a dollar worth of transaction fees every block, yeah. it's sort of a, one of those decisions where it's not even worth their time to turn that functionality off. Yeah, Some do, yeah. but would I bother spending five minutes hunting down the configuration option for that? Yeah. Probably not. It's kind of an inertia thing. I wouldn't be surprised if that goes away in the future, but for now it seems to kind of just happen by inertia. Okay. Well, maybe one uh, last thing on the transaction fees. So do you think uh, the way uh, in the future 
we will have, uh, you know, maybe the block limit will become a real factor so that we'll have blocks that are full and, you know, people will have, people who pay less, you know, they will have to wait for a, a future block with less, uh, less transactions in it well, or um, do you think that's going to be... to think that blocks are not already full in that there is more demand for blocks, blockchain space than there is capacity. However, that demand tends to be for extremely low-value applications. So those people get priced to the market by transaction fees. Therefore, they use other ways to transact with Bitcoin. So you mean, uh, if, can I, is that correct? If what you're saying is that if it was free, then it would be full, but so now they, they people use off-chain transactions? Well, I'm saying that the transaction fees, as they are, are already expensive enough that they price people at the market and they use other systems. Uh, Just Dice was an example where they gained a lot of business from Satoshi Dice in part because per gamble costs less money. Yeah. And equally, you see Coinbase to Coinbase transactions. That's actually a very common case. Someone has a Coinbase account, they pay a merchant. It's entirely off-chain. No transaction fees. You know, and also you see people who want to spam the blockchain with junk for advertising messages and whatnot. And what do you know? They don't get in the blockchain because they can't afford the fees. Equally, I'll also point out that there's this misconception that miners don't fill up the blocks or creating small blocks. You know, you go see blocks that are nearly make white all the time. There's a subset of miners who mine at theoretical capacity, so to speak, and they create nearly full blocks all the time. And to the extent that you don't see every single person doing this, well, there's not that much difference between half a megabyte and a megabyte. Yeah. You know, when transaction fees are worth so little, again, it's an inertia thing. Why would you even turn that little knob and change things? Well, you know? I was asking Gavin about that at the, the Amsterdam conference, and he told me that the cost of including a transaction was at 10 cents. In that it you know it makes your yes. block bigger and increases your risk of yes. orphan block. Um, That's a very complex topic. Uh, he is right in the broad brushstrokes. The problem is that there's no good way to get the cost down without creating incentives. Where, for instance, a larger miner has a lower cost than a smaller miner because the larger miner will never orphan themselves. They'll always build on their own blocks. So if you try to optimize that number a lot you further ins- make it, um, give an incentive for pools like ghash.io to exist. Yeah, and centralization. Exactly. And they'll earn more money than smaller pools, which is already the case, but the amount of extra money they earn is, say, 0.1%. And you could easily get that to, say, 1%, 5%, 10%. That's a big edge. Okay. Thank, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Oh, thanks very much. Very interesting. Thanks so much for listening to our coverage of Coin Summit. If you enjoyed this episode, please support us with your donation. It really helps us traveling to conferences and produce high-quality content for you. You can donate at epicenterbitcoin.com tips, where we have our tipping addresses and also an option for donation subscriptions. Your support is much appreciated and special thanks to those generous souls who have already donated to the podcast. 